Hold on to your butts. Hello and welcome to episode 67 of the Reviewed Movie Podcast. I am Ivan Kander and as always I am joined by my two handsome debonair co-hosts Dave Glanz and Mike Mirandi. Say hello gentlemen. Hello Hello, gentlemen. gentlemen. And this is the podcast where we talk about classic movies in a modern cinematic context. If this is your first time listening to this show, you can find us on the web at reviewedpodcast.com, at facebook.com slash reviewedpodcast, and you can email us with movie suggestions at contact at reviewedpodcast.com. So that's how you can get in touch with us. And uh, on today's episode, we are going to be uh, conducting a review of Wes Anderson's 2001 film, The Royal Tenenbaums. There were three extraordinary children in the Tenenbaum family. I said sell it, yeah. Chaz Tenenbaum was a financial expert and started buying real estate in his early teens. Margot Tenenbaum was an acclaimed playwright and won a Pulitzer Prize in the ninth grade. Richie Tenenbaum was a champion tennis player ranked second in the world by age 17. They were brilliant. They were famous. They were unlucky enough to be the children of a man named Royal Tenenbaum. Are you getting divorced? It doesn't look good. Was that our fault? Obviously, we made certain sacrifices as a result of having children, but uh, no, Lord, no. Thank you, Pagoda. Well, I'm on my way. Now, for the first time in 22 years... I hear you're dying. Ooh, how long are you going to last? A month? A year? I've got six weeks to set things right. <laughs> They're all living together under the same roof, in harmony. I love you more than anything. <laughs> the Royal Tannenbaums is a... Uh, movie. Movie. And it's an exciting movie. film to talk about for a variety of reasons. Uh, Mike, this is your choice, correct? Yes, it was. And I'm very excited because this is the first time you've seen a Wes Anderson movie, right? I know. And that was the whole reason why we did it. I was, I realized a couple weeks ago I'd never actually seen any of his films. I thought I had seen one or two of them, but but nope. This is uh, 33 years now, and I've I've gone through my whole life. That's well, he hasn't been single. making movies your entire life. So, that, I mean, you know. it's Yeah, but I mean, I, you know. Yeah. No, it's still embarrassing. I'm it's not still saying ba- you, <laughs> right, should, right, you right. shouldn't feel good about yourself. But yeah. um, and this film never, Mike, never feel good. And this is a really good one to start out with. I feel like uh, because I think it's often um, there's some debate about it, but a lot of people consider it to either be his best or one of his best uh, movies. Um, he is a director. Uh, that is very much an auteur in the sense that you know you're watching a Wes Anderson movie. Um, I was convinced I hated Wes Anderson for several years because um, I hate how much people rip him off and I hate the indie aesthetic that he has kind of um, spawned. Like, for instance, I write for a website called Short of the Week. and Shortoftheweek.com! Yeah, that's the one. And literally every day I get a, a film submitted that is essentially a Wes Anderson ripoff, like with voiceover and re- like really specific voiceover and really like intricate production design. and Dead, very, Deadpan humor? Very deadpan style. Like it's a lot of pans key. and zooms, like sloppy pans and zooms. Or very, set, very um, like centered, focused things. Like he has created such a style that it is so easy to parody that – a lot of people just do and don't understand what I think makes him work as a filmmaker as a result. But I'm getting ahead of myself. The Royal Tenenbaums, 
is about an estranged family of former uh, child prodigies that reunite when their father, uh, played by Gene Hackman, announces he is terminally ill. It was co-written by both Anderson and Owen Wilson, who also co-stars in the film. Very interesting. Uh, I didn't know that until the credits. Uh, yeah, they, they go way back because I think Owen Wilson was a contributor on Bottle Rocket, which he stars in as well. Yeah, um, and, and Rushmore. And Rushmore. There you go. Um, so they're longtime collaborators. And this movie is a star-studded affair. It uh, features Gene Hackman, Angelica Houston, Ben Stiller, Gwyneth Paltrow, Luke Wilson, Owen Wilson, Bill Murray, the Danny Glover, who we've covered like every... Yes. He's been in every movie we've talked about. I think we've about. now done all of his films, <laughs> I'm pretty sure. This is his entire filmography. Uh, so it is very much, and it even features Alec Baldwin strictly in a narration role. So, yeah. oh um, no way! Yeah, well, you didn't recognize that, uh, yeah, that, that voice? Was, yeah, I was going to say no. That. I wasn't paying attention wow. enough. <laughs> very interesting. Oh boy, this is going to be interesting. This is a, this is a rough <laughs> podcast for me. It's like zero for two now. Well, I mean, I remember last podcast where we spent uh, about twenty minutes where you didn't realize that the list was only from the past fifteen yeah, years. Yeah, guys, good. I think I think I'm losing it. I don't I don't know how many more how many more years I have left on this old brain of mine. It's so, uh, you know, Mike, I'm going to start with you first because I'm just curious to hear uh, when you popped your Wes Anderson cherry. Oh, my. Um, okay. Well, how did that feel? Did it feel good? Did it feel it good, hurt. Mike? <laughs> it hurt. It did hurt. Time. Okay. Yeah. But, but then um, after a while, you kind of get used to it, and then it's fine. Um, I, I think... Um, hmm. Oh, hmm. I, I, I like... I, I think this film particular, I did not... Didn't love the film itself, but I like his Ooh. style. I, I think I get him now, and I uh, I appreciate what he does. And I think it's it's fun and quirky. I think my favorite thing that he does is like all the little subtleties in like seeing characters do things like in the background. Like I, I, my favorite scene is when what's his name? I mean, not my favorite scene, but one of the moments that stands out is when Danny Glover proposes and uh, Pagoda in the background is like on a chair, like in the window, all the way in the background, <laughs> and he like looks up. And you can, like, stuff like that, the little subtle, like, character reactions um, that are framed somewhat comically and strangely um, is a lot. And that's the one I, I remember off the top of my head. There's other ones like it where you have people in the frame. Um, just when, he, when he's talking about Dudley and how he says, like, he has an, a, an amazing sense of hearing. And he's in the other room and he says something about, like, I'm not colorblind or whatever it was. Yeah. There's a lot of good, like, character reaction shots of just them turning or looking or, or stuff like that. Um, I like all of his... You know, the very famous, like, you know, uh, dead-on shots where everything is, like, like locked off. No dynamic angles. Everything is very square to the shot. Like, everything is lined up, like, on a table or on a desk or in the frame. Um, but I wonder how much all of those, like, locked off, not locked off shots, but, um, you know, squared off shots contributed to the, I feel like the whole movie moved so slow. And you guys know me. I huh. like slow movies. And I don't mind watching a long movie. For some reason, this movie seemed to drag on for me. Not necessarily in a bad way. It just felt like it was like a three-hour movie. Not that I wasn't enjoying it the whole time. I just when I was done, I'm like, wow, that was long. It was only two hours. It was yeah. It's only like an hour and forty-eight. Hour, hour, it's a yeah. tight four yeah, hour, hour and forty-eight. I feel like you had a mixed reaction to this one. You're not quite sure where you stand on. Well, it no, yet. I said at the movie itself, I don't necessarily like love the the plot or the characters necessarily, but I like the style. Is what is kind of where I'm where I'm at with this. Um, Okay, that's yeah. interesting. I think I'm gonna. I think you're kind of. Um, well, I think you're kind of reflecting an experience that I've had with Wes Anderson my entire life, uh, or at least in the time I've watched his movies. But Dave, I'm gonna ask you this question: How much do you want to make out with Wes Anderson? Because I'm assuming you freaking <laughs> love this man. I love how my introduction always has some kind of major assumption about me and my, <laughs> and my likes and dislikes. Well, I mean, um, is the poster? 
in of him that you have in your house? Like you just make out with it like twice a day, <laughs> I don't or have a poster? He just gropes it now. If you can't make out with it, you're gonna ruin the poster. Yeah, no, I don't have a poster of Wes Anderson in my house, but I would have a poster of Rushmore if I could. Because that, um, is that your favorite of his? That is probably still my favorite of his of his movies. Um, that was his second movie. It came out in '98, and uh, that is a movie that I feel like it, it came out. I was I graduated college in '98. Rushmore came out. I think, I'm pretty sure it was '98. It might have not come out until '99. I'm not sure. You know, in in, uh, in Pittsburgh. Either way, uh, you know, that was the movie that made me think, well, this guy's making exact, he's kind of right in tune with my sense of humor and, uh, you know, the things that I, I like. I mean, I love The Graduate. We reviewed The Graduate here on the show. And uh, The Rushmore is very reminiscent of that and also Harold and Maude, I would say, which is another movie that we talked about on the show. That Mike hated. Uh-huh. That mm-hmm. Mike hated. Mm-hmm. So I feel like Despised. his uh, his sense of humor is, is kind of, you know, I, I feel like probably comes from those types of movies, these uh, quirky uh, classic movies, and um, by him I mean Wes Anderson, of course. And Wait, me? Ta- you were talking about him, not me. Not, not, not Mike. No, oh. no Wes Anderson. Oh, okay. um, so I remember distinctly seeing the the Rolling Bums in the theater with a packed house. I mean, it, it, it wasn't like a blockbuster movie, but it was a it was a successful independent production, right? It was nominated for a few Academy Awards, and uh, you know it was one of those really good theater experiences. I mean, Gene Hackman's stuff got big laughs in the theater. I remember the uh, opening sequence with uh, the opening montage where you, you know, you're just kind of introduced to all the characters and, you, you know, Gene Hackman has lots of great little lines, you know, there are lots of little short scenes that are, that just kind of like rep move quickly, which is, you know, surprising to, to hear that you thought it moves kind of slow. Cause I felt like this movie, you know, kind of moves uh, fairly. A lot happens. Uh, a lot it's, happens. It's fairly but... zippy. A lot happens. It feels pretty zippy to zippy to me, but um, you know, there's this one, there's this, there's this one uh, moment where he's uh, so Gene Hackman plays Royal Tenenbaum, who's the patriarch of this family, and uh, he's you know they're flashing back to you know the, the early days of the family when all and, and showing how all three kids were, were geniuses, and uh, there's the adopted daughter uh, Margot Tenenbaum, and I love the way they refer to her as the adopted daughter, like this is my adopted daughter Margot Tenenbaum. And the way he reacts to her play, you know, he's like, it wasn't very believable. <laughs> you know, <laughs> like it was just a bunch of people dressed up as animals. Like, I, I mean, obviously you had to be Gene Hackman to deliver that line perfectly. But uh, I remember that being just like a laugh out loud line. And, and uh, you know, that kind of set the tone for me. I well, love I mean, Gene. The, the, I, I mean, I think that, that that sequence is great because it uh, represents what Wes Anderson is really good at. And that's layering jokes. Mm-hmm. So like it, there is a joke where there's a, a man basically cutting down his daughter, which is kind of like it's funny in a dark way and, and then it reveals birth- it's her birthday. That, and then it reveals that it's her birthday which is like the end tag on top of that they start so, singing happy birthday it's, to it's, her it's, as she's walking down the stairs it's very um simpsons like almost oh yeah it's, it's very gag layered like a simpsons episode or even a family guy episode which is interesting but yeah anyway, go ahead I, i'm is it probably pre-family guy anyway i remember this being you know this came out like a few months after september 11th so you know there were certain movies i was really glad to see this movie and um uh the fellowship of the ring they were just like, I don't know, both the, this movie and that movie, they both warmed my heart at the time, I remember. So I have fond memories of the Royal Tenenbaums. That said, it's been a long time since I've seen it all the way through. I've, I, it's been on cable. I've seen it bits and pieces. I haven't sat down and watched the whole thing in a long time. At least 10 years, I would say. Uh, and uh, I feel like it holds up pretty well. I mean, I think it's, it's, I don't, it's not my, a lot of people call it his best, I think. You know, I'm not sure if it's, if it's actually his best, but... Uh, you go to Rotten Tomatoes, I think um, Grand Budapest Hotel and Rushmore and Fantastic Mr. Fox, or I think those are his highest rated movies. 
And you know, I you know, I feel like uh, he's had a pretty solid career. He had like a major dip with a couple movies, uh, the Darjeeling Limited and um, uh, the Life Aquatic with Steve Zissou, which I was really looking forward to and pretty disappointed in. And I, I know a lot of people like both of those movies, but um, I you know, I'm not for I, Dave. Yeah, no, no, not I, today. I you know, I feel like he he started out really strong, especially with Rushmore, still one of my favorite movies, and. Um, Real Tenenbaums, which I like a lot, and uh, you know, you know, things just went downhill for a little while, and then he came came back really strong with uh, Fantastic Mr. Fox, Grand Budapest Hotel, Moonrise Kingdom. I feel like these are all, you know, he's he's really kind of hitting a. It feels like he's really hitting a stride in terms of of uh, balancing his quirky uh, deadpan humor with you know intricate sets and you know it's. It's like a his movies are like a designer's dream. It's like it feels like you're walking into some kind of dollhouse. Um, and, well, it's um, funny that you mentioned that because um, I think Wes Anderson chose the wrong career. I think he should have just made dollhouses. Dollhouses, um, because <laughs> he. I kind of see that. Yeah, you can see that he could have worked in a museum like the like uh, uh, like do you like I, I made this joke on Twitter a while back, but like how does Wes Anderson hide his erection when he walks into a. Um, a world market like oh. how does he like how does he, when he how does he i like, don't think he hides it yeah <laughs> he just flaunts it yeah like he's a guy i mean he's i think there's a punchline there like he's you're supposed to say he doesn't or something <laughs> i i just i said that <laughs> Never mind. Did. i didn't hear you sorry oh anyway anyway the point is, if you look at Wes Anderson, he looks like a character out of a Wes Anderson movie. <laughs> he wears tight-fitting like little Lilliputian suits, and he's got ascots, and he's just got the stringy hair. Like he looks like he belongs in one of his own movies. He's very much his aesthetic is very much what defines him. And um, I, I think I've made peace with Wes Anderson in the sense that I, in rewatching this and watching Grand Budapest Hotel a few years back, I've come to really appreciate him as a filmmaker. At the same time, a lot of his movies leave leave me very cold. The same. Um, I feel the same. Um, which is why I didn't. I don't love him. Um, I don't like movies like Moonrise Kingdom and Darjeeling and Steve Zissou, Life Aquatic, because all those movies are just like quirk fests. Like mm-hmm. it's all the humor and quirk of Royal Tenenbaums, but none of the heart. And the the reason I think in rewatching this film, where Royal Tenenbaums actually does elevate and work for me, is that there is a genuine. Um, emotional resonance here Um, and I don't want to get too far ahead but well maybe I will I'm going to get pretty far ahead actually go for it in in the film in the film this this whole the whole idea is that they're a dysfunctional family that has this patriarch that basically is callous and uncaring and comes to realize by the uh, end of the movie that he does love these people and he is almost sad that he never um, appreciated them the way that he probably should have. It's funny. It's, I feel like it's almost the reverse. You know, I feel like it's the people, it's the children and wife that almost end up feeling that way about him. Well, I mean, I mean, there is a line in the movie where the narrator explicitly says, "This has been the," uh, you know, where um, Gene Hackman's character Royal says, "This has been the greatest, you know, few weeks of my life," hmm. and he there was a moment of melancholy when he realized that, that was actually true, um, and. The reason I think it actually does work is I think that those partner parties coming together actually does work for me. And I think that Ben Siller, oddly enough, who has probably the quirkiest start of all the characters in the movie, I would say. Mm-hmm. Like he wears synchronized jumpsuits with his kids right. who have ridiculous names that, you know, look just like him. He's neurotic. Like he is he is quirk to the nines <laughs> but he gets the line in the movie that i think is the most emotional line oh, yeah, when he says you know it's been a really tough year right or that, and, yeah. I, and and yeah. and he's the one when his father does eventually die in the chronicle of this 
this this fairy tale of this upper upper class New York family rides with him in the hospital. And I think that's I think that that's a testament to why this film works is that those moments amidst all the quirkiness actually do feel somewhat real. And it's something that I, I appreciated in this run through. I think that Wes Anderson is an easy filmmaker to um, he's an easy filmmaker to criticize because if you don't buy into what he's doing, it's just easy to detach. Like, mm-hmm. be like, like Mike said, be like, God, is this going on forever? And um, not in a bad way. <laughs> I don't know how that cannot be a bad thing though for you. <laughs> like it's that like, movie was like unterminable. Of, like Lord of the Rings, when you're just like, "Wow, great movie," but it was three hours long. It was like, "Yeah, good movie," but three hours long. <laughs> With like Wait, I know, I know for I know you didn't feel that way. Are you talking about Return of the King? Well, I mean, all of them were like three oh, hours. Okay. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, yeah except for uh, is is what's the, is that the joke about Return of the King where it like ends like twenty times? Yeah, it's like yeah. five or six different endings. Yeah. Yeah, there you go. I was too busy crying at the time to remember to notice. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> because the, uh, the movie was emotional, not just because I was randomly. Lord crying. of the Rings never has done anything. Return for of me. the King. Again, Ivan, gonna... we've discussed this before. There's certain movies you need to have a soul to appreciate. And I think that's <laughs> one of them. I think Dave, you have a soul, surprisingly. Yeah. So I feel yeah. like that that works on you. I think I used yeah. to have a soul, and then it was beaten out of me by life. But you mm. know, there you go. Possible. Um, yeah. So let's talk about. Uh, the characters in this movie and whether or not I mean they hold up who, yeah who's your favorite character Mike and why <sighs> tough oh. call tough call um, you can give multiple answers yeah, yeah no I think there's a couple I, I, maybe like so I, I really like what's this, uh, Bill Murray's character because he's just so sad and tragic <laughs> you just feel so well, you, bad for him well then you really need to see Rushmore then yeah, yeah. Um, but no, as far as the main character, I thought I thought Luke Wilson, I kind of went into this not liking Luke Wilson. He's like, the, I feel like he's the the better looking and therefore like the less awesome Owen Wilson. It's like, oh, it's like he's just a good looking Owen Wilson, like whatever. And Owen Wilson's not a bad looking guy, but he just doesn't have a busted nose. So I'm like, I don't know. I, I like Owen Wilson better. He's the better Wilson. And then I got in this one and I was Wilson. very impressed by Luke Wilson's performance. Um and- and Richie Tenenbaum, again, this is where this movie succeeds, where a lot of Wes Anderson movies falter, is Luke Wilson has a very emotional arc as well that feels very true. Yeah. Uh, and means a lot. I, his his suicide, I mean, this is a movie full of making, doing dark comedic things and making fun of a lot of its characters or situations they're in in a kind of a dry way. But his suicide scene is not dry. It is dark. Yeah, it's it sad. Is, it, yeah, it's, it's sad. Just, it's tragic. And it's surpri- it felt like it was a little out of tone for me, actually. Um because I'm like, oh, like now it's getting real. Like before, it was like, oh, okay, everyone's so weird, and now you're like, oh, whoa. Um, and then when well, you I see think... his scars, they're just. I guess that's the joke is that he cuts himself like 50 times. Like they seemed very elaborate. Well, I think that um, uh, there's no sense of um, the the whole movie plays like a fairy tale. That there's really no sense of danger to anything uh, except. In that moment, it's like, holy crap, there is actually stakes in this movie. Because up until that point, I mean, just crazy stuff happens. You got Gene Hackman going dogfighting with his grandsons. You've got, like, it's just, it's, it's a bunch of, um, like, events that don't feel like, they're like, oh, that's played for laughs, but that scene isn't. So I find that intriguing. Yeah. Dave, who is your favorite character? Huh, it's, it's interesting. It's like, I'm, I'm, I'm sitting here thinking, trying to think, who can I, who can I say that's... Uh you know, different, but I'm just going to go ahead with Royal. <laughs> I mean, I think Gene Hackman is definitely my favorite character. Uh, you know, Ro- Royal Tenenbaum is definitely my favorite character in this movie. Um, I just love uh, Gene Hackman's ability to balance. He, he's, he's he's always able to, he's, 
he's an expert at playing a lovable asshole. You know, like even when he's the villain in a movie like Un- Unforgiven, I mean, I still I still love his character. Um, so yeah, it's it's not a hard choice for me. It's it's definitely uh, Gene Hackman's. Well, uh, you know, seeing him in this movie, uh, I thought two things. One, it's a shame that Hackman isn't really acting much anymore, or acting at all anymore. But the other thing is, um, Wes Anderson has this thing where he works with a lot of the same people over and over again. Except he's only worked with Gene Hackman this one time, yeah. and I think this is by far my favorite. Like, care. I wish I see Gene Hackman in other Wes Anderson movies because he's just oh, so yeah. good in this movie he's got he's the kind of guy that is like a total can be aloof and a total dick but you still want to hang out with him like as a character like and you can you can kind of understand why like Richie Tenenbaum would still be drawn to him or any of his children haven't totally written him off because he has a certain electricity that draws people to him uh, which makes it work really well and he's got just some freaking hilarious moments when he shoots his own son with the BB it's like (laughs) there are no teens (laughs) Yeah. Oh man, that thing just gets me every time. Like laugh out loud, funny. So um, yeah, I think that this is the most complete Wes Anderson movie for me in retrospect. Uh, I think that uh, Rushmore might be his. I think Rushmore is less quirky. It's still very quirky, Rushmore. Don't get me wrong, but I think Rushmore may be a little less quirky, which is why it's easier to digest as like a conventional movie. Um, if that makes sense. Yeah. The problem with Life Aquatic is it's him playing all the comedic notes of. The Royal Tenenbaums, but none of the um, none of the emotion works in that movie. Like you just don't because Bill Murray is essentially playing the Gene Hackman esque character in that film, yeah. the like aloof guy who um, is kind of a dick, but people still like to be around him, that kind of thing. But it just never really pays off in a satisfying way. So I guess my question, Dave, is I mean, there's no doubting that Wes Anderson is a stylist, but I mean, does the emotion, like I say, I'm saying it works for me, but do you think it works for you or do you just purely enjoy Wes Anderson on the comedic look at that production design? Oh, no. Of? I mean, I think I think it hits uh, the emotional beats pretty well. I mean, I, it definitely that uh, the way Ben Stiller delivers that line, the way his voice cracks, I mean, it's, you know, it, and, uh, you know, if, it, if the movie hadn't built up to that moment in a believable way, I feel like, you know, at that moment it wouldn't work. And I, so I think like... You know, you have a character who's, um, you know, his uh, character is, um, what is his, not Richie, but... Uh, Chaz? Chaz, yes, Chaz. Uh, you know, he's lost his wife the year before. He's, he's, uh, he's, all he's thinking about is the safety of his two sons. And uh, I think there's just, you know, there's just enough going on with his character and what he's gone through. The humor is, you know, it's it's teetering on the, on the edge of being, you know, a little too, uh, you know, over the top. But I think it never really crosses that line. So, I, you know, it, it, the movie never really loses me. Uh, so, you know, I, 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 this is one of my favorite of Ben Stiller's performances. I think he was he's pretty solid in this movie. And uh, Owen, Owen Wilson, I remember when this movie came out and people talked a little bit about the suicide scene. You know, he plays a tennis player you're who's retired. You're talking about Luke Wilson? Luke Wilson's character, Richie, uh, and, you know, ends up committing suicide. He's in love with his adopted sister, played by Gwyneth Paltrow. And he can't have her. He doesn't have the you know he doesn't have the guts to tell her that he's he's been in love with her since they were kids. And uh, you know that scene. I remember it feeling a little. It didn't play as uh, well, you know, ten fifteen years ago when I saw it. But this time I I, I bought it. I mean I I really you know it, you know it didn't really uh, come as a sucker. It didn't really hit me in the gut. But I mean I, I bought the uh, the emotion of that uh, that moment and that character. 
Um, and, uh, you know, I, I appreciated Gwyneth Paltrow a little more in this movie, too. I mean, just overall, it's like I've had enough distance from this movie and, and having gone back to see it uh, now, I feel like, uh, you know, it's, it, the quirks have I'm kind of over over that kind of that kind of uh, humor, you know. You know, I've, maybe I'm just old and I've I've seen too many movies at this point. But uh, you know, the uh, the emotional stuff resonates well enough for me that it, I feel like the movie still works. So um, that you know, on top of just some amazing uh, you know compositions and you know technical you know filmmaking in this, I mean, is you know it's. It's never a boring movie to watch. I mean, it's it's. I would never call this movie boring. It's uh, except if you're more Mike. slow. It, yeah, no, yeah, 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 yep, yep. I mean, I, I just, hated this movie. God, I mean, it was <laughs> abysmal, and it was I mean, like five hours long. So I mean, Rushmore has a lot of detail too, but but this is really where he started really packing in the details to of his movie. I mean, there's like not a wasted inch in in a, in a frame. There, there really isn't, and it, it's it's the kind of thing where you could pause the movie and just look at the signage or like game boxes that are in the background and they all feel like they've been purposely placed there. The yeah. thing that I find most amazing is just um like I I just so this movie looks very expensive to me. Like it just feels expensive and maybe that's because there's so much stuff on the screen. But you know, relatively speaking, as Dave mentioned, this is an indie film. It was it didn't cost I mean it wasn't this isn't like a super cheap movie to make, but it's a relatively low budget movie that they shot and somehow managed to pull off. And I think it's just uh, uh, the the fact that the way he uses production design to elevate like that their house feels so specific. Mm-hmm. Um and and very much of uh the milieu that he's going for, this kind of all his all Wes Anderson movies feel like they exist in a time that never is or never was. Right. Like there's like the storyboard book nature. Like there is no year to this movie. It's yeah. just a, it's just a a vintage. It's got that it follows thing going on where it's like a retro vintage present. Yeah, so. I, I know exactly what you mean. Like his his, his movies take place in. In a, you know, a parallel a galaxy, universe, a, a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away, or an alternate so, timeline. Yeah, it's just you perhaps know, does, the it doesn't matter timeline. when they take. It doesn't matter when they take place. Really. I mean, even uh, from the literal device of physically showing that this is a story being read out of a storybook, uh, almost to the point where you can see the pages of the chapters as they start, and that correlates to the way the scene begins. I never I like realized. That. It, I, I never like realized. That that, I never realized that the actual words on the page were like. Like the, it was actually stuff that was going to happen. In the it's like scene. yeah, line for line, what yeah. happens after that, which is like like you know he holds the boar's head as he walks mm. down the stairs, and you know there he is holding the boar's head as he walks down the stairs. So all that stuff I think is really interesting, and um, and uh, I think actually elevates the movie for me, Mike. Now I'm curious because you're like you're like a character. Like the reason I, I going into this, my anticipation or my, my projection onto you was that you were going to hate this movie. And, and the reason being is that you I are very, movie. you, you are a very character driven film goer in the sense that you like characters that feel real and emotionally real and really grab you. And these are characters that kind of exist in like this fantasy world. So yeah. did you have trouble latching on it? To, the, to it from that perspective? I found that, yes, to a degree, I think I did. Um, I think it never got me at the emotional level where I actually believed them or I felt for them in a very real way, but I still enjoyed them. I think maybe they were so kind of extreme that they weren't real. 
Um, but that doesn't mean that I didn't feel sympathy for them in certain situations. Like you guys mentioned the Ben Stiller's line, uh, you know, it's been a tough year. I think just um, Luke Wilson's journey through the whole thing, you still feel for them. Um, I didn't. I never felt bad necessarily for Royal because I think he just. I like him, but I think he's not necessarily someone you feel bad for because he's kind of. But to, to quote Danny Glover, you're just kind of a son of a bitch, you know, it's, <laughs> yeah. um, which is a well, great mean, line, uh, by the way. Well, I think um, this is a valid question. Who is the hero of this movie? Whose story? It's an ensemble piece. Yes, I, I realize that. But is there a character that you would say? I mean, can you name another movie that does this thing where, like, everyone's a main character in the film? Because I would argue that literally, like, every every character you could argue is, it is their story that is being well, told. I mean, you know, there, there are Robert Altman movies where there's like a million characters and like Shortcuts or MASH or Nashville and, um, you know, those types of movies, but, I feel but, like. But that, that's an interesting contrast because Altman is the opposite of Wes Anderson is that he makes very naturalistic pictures that feature a lot of, feature ensemble cast, yes, but he's not the control freak that Wes Anderson is. Like, Wes Anderson is like the most anal retentive filmmaker that has ever existed. He has to be. I mean, look at the way he films his movies. So yeah. and I guess like, the, the closest to a hero has to be Gene Hackman's, uh, you know, the patriarch of the family, I guess. I mean... Or is it, uh, to get really deep, is it th- this idea of family as a concept, maybe, right? Maybe the family is... Maybe uh, restoring the family is the hero, the protagonist. Well, it's a plot. Well, and... Uh, well, I do. I do have this question about like theme uh, and what the movie's trying to say. And um, this is going to sound like a dumb question, so bear with me. But is family family? Like, what family a family? stupid <laughs> question! No, but is this idea that does familial bonds overcome all? Like, no. can someone screw? Oh, no. Can no. some? Can someone screw up to a point where they can't come back? And is the movie um, asking yes. that question? But is it, but the movie I think suggests that it does co- overcome all that. That at the end of the day, that your family ties are so important that no matter what, at the, at the end, no matter you can you can reconcile in a way that I don't know is meaningful and, and works. You don't you didn't get that from the movie at all about rec- reconciliation. Well, I mean, I think I think in this particular situation, sure. I mean, it's saying that uh, this this is a family that uh, you know there's enough that that uh, that binds them that uh, reconciliation is possible, I suppose. Um, you know, maybe it's uh, them all being geniuses, <laughs> possibly. Mm-hmm. Uh, or uh, I don't know. I, think, I mean, I, know, I think to Ivan's point, I, th- I think yes. Um, because I've, I've known a couple of people who have, you know, like a, had terrible fathers, alcoholic fathers, um, bad relationships with their parents. And for some reason, you, it seems like anytime that parent comes back in an attempt to apologize, Generally, and I'm not saying that's the case in every situation, but usually people let it happen. I think that you you do have a bond with your family that um, you know grudges aside and and feuds aside. I think there's a certain amount of um, more leeway there. I think if you're some random guy on the street or just somebody you know or coworker or something like that, I think you can burn bridges much more easily. But I think with family, there's something else, especially a relationship between a parent and their child, and that goes both ways. I think. Um, I think what this movie's suggesting at the beginning though is that you know they, they've drifted apart a little but not that much i mean i think they right. all still live they all still live in new york right they all i mean uh not richie he's on his ship somewhere you're right he's on his continue you're right on his, his but every, everybody else in the family i guess right i mean everyone else still lives in new york so they're all you know in the same area 
Um, so you know, then, you know, it's you know, he's Ben Stiller's character isn't too, uh, you know, he's pretty quick to when he's feeling stressed to just run back and live at his mother's house with his kids. Um, I got locked out with all my stuff yeah. and all my suitcases. Right, and then uh, the you know, and then uh, Margot finds out that uh, one brother's moved back, and why is he allowed to move back? I'm going to move back. You know, they start they all start acting like children. They all start reverting back to what they were like as kids, I guess, in some ways. I think that is kind of a reflection of what I'm saying, though, is this idea that family roles just kind of force your hand a little bit. Like, you kind of fill into your role very easily if you, if you, if you want to, and I think this movie is suggesting that the nature of family itself is this idea of a family unit is, is very much controlling your destiny in a lot of ways. And uh, I think it dictates these characters. I think, I think psychologically you, you are put into a role and, and you because that's what you grow up as. Everybody always knows. You know, you, to a parent, their children are always going to be their babies. And I think to a child, the parent is always going to be like, oh, my parent, who's my, my dad is always telling me what to do. My mom's always trying to whatever. So I feel like that is there's definitely psychologically we kind of lock everybody into certain roles um that we knew you know your little brother is always your little brother even when he gets bigger than you <laughs> you know it's it's i think there's certain things that you just kind of come to know people as and uh it sticks and i feel like in this way they kind of a lot of them are reverting back to their old ways their, their old roles um uh yeah um <laughs> now, going back to who yeah yeah going back in Going back to who Wes Anderson is as a filmmaker, and his last film, The Grand Budapest Hotel, Botel, Botel. Botel was very well received critically. Um, it was nominated for an Academy Award for Best Picture, I believe, right? And director, yeah. Um, First time. So probably one of his you know, biggest critical successes. Um, and I actually enjoyed that movie quite a bit, much for the same reason I like The Royal Tenenbaums, is I think I've, I've made peace with Wes Anderson at this point. Like I think I, I went through a period where I really hated him, mm-hmm. and I've, I've kind of come around a bit on him. But I don't know where he goes as a filmmaker from here. You know, like I don't know what his progress. Like I don't think I don't he progresses. Th- I think he's got his style and he just he sticks to it. No. Well, I mean, there's certain things I like to see, I would like to see from him. I mean, I, I like, would like. What, what would you like to see? I mean, I, I mean, I like I like the way he shook things up with Fantastic Mr. Fox, for instance, where where he he he's taking his style and applying it to a new genre, a new not not that stop motion hasn't existed before, but. You know, he he's never made a stop motion film. Right, it's like so, Wes I mean, Anderson translated another language. It would be interesting to see him make like a bunch of genre movies, like westerns or a musical, or you know, I feel the same way about you him know, as I do fun about fact, someone like. I have Fantastic yeah. Mr. Fox sitting on my shelf. Never oh, watched yeah? it. Ah, well, you should. Yeah, I should. I should. It's good. Yeah. The Criterion uh, version collection. Uh, no, probably no, not. No. Okay. Well, I mean. Um, I don't know if he can do it though, Dave. Like, I don't think he's. I don't think he has it in him, unless it's unless it's a genre that, like animation, that lends itself to the meticulousness of his craft. So, so you're saying he's peaked? I don't think he can. Yeah, unless he just uh, constructs some jewelry boxes the rest of his life. Well, the I, next movie he's uh, directing is called Untitled Wes Anderson Project, which well, is very, very uh, <laughs> descriptive. Descriptive. Well, I mean, he is <laughs> Not a filmmaker. Quirky at all. <laughs> I think you could argue. He, he is a filmmaker. Uh, essentially, just all his movies are just him choosing a different milieu and applying his style to that milieu. So Wes Anderson is the culture of high school. Uh, not Wes Anderson. <laughs> Rushmore is the culture of high school. Um, the Royal Tenenbaums is high society New York in the 1970s. Probably. Uh, um, Life Aquatic is uh, Jacques Cousteau. Uh, uh, Underwater. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. What Cousteau? Jacques. Jacques. <laughs> it's not Jacques. 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 Jacques.
Jacques Cousteau. Jacques Cousteau. It's like Jack. Jack. No, no, I'm going to say Jacques. No, it's not Jacques. Jacques. Um, that is... Jacques uh, that, is, that is French. That is French uh, marine Starring biology. Starring Jacques Nicholson. Yes. Jacques Nicholson. Jacques Nicholson. Um, marine <laughs> biology. And then... Um, uh, Darjeeling Limited is uh, Trains in India. It's it's yeah. it, and so he's it's like, a Bollywood movie, it, sort of. But it all his it's like um, like you know video game developers are like well now we're gonna do um, this is an obscure rep, 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 uh, reference, reference but like yeah. Bioshock is a game that's like we're gonna do Ayn Rand in underwater and then we're gonna do like it's it, it, he's basically is just obsessed with different milieus mm -hmm. and I feel like this is why Wes Anderson is the wrong career he should have been a theme park designer and he should have designed huh. the Q a, Dis a Disney he should have done the queue lines at Disney World and that should be he'd be the greatest theme park engineer that has ever existed yeah, well I mean hey I mean maybe that's he I could, mean I don't know he, it's tough because he could do one like of those live action Disney uh, remakes it might 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 be uh, an interesting I would just like to see him not make a Wes Anderson movie. And okay. I don't know and if that's that ever going to happen. that's what he enjoys doing. I think like it's like, kind of like saying almost like Van Gogh. It's like, I'd love to see Van Gogh do a different style of painting. Like maybe like a Picasso or something. <laughs> like, well, I, but I, I think that that's what he's known for. And I and I, I, I feel like he's, he's the guy who does that movie. So No, that's a fair point. And, it, yeah, and if I'm him, asking... I'm like, no, nah, that's, that's how I roll. That's how I want to do. I mean, I, I agree with you, Ivan. I feel like to, to a degree... I mean, as a motion graphics artist, like I like, I have my particular style, but I also like branching out and trying new things and trying new styles. But in some way, I think if you do that, you don't have a voice, you know, as much because you're just kind of doing a whole bunch of stuff where you're doing more of the flavor of the day versus saying like, hey, this is what I do. This is what people come to me for. And this is what, you know, I'm sure he's thinking that, well, people expect my, my style of, of movie with my weird choices and, and different aesthetics. Like that's what people are coming for. And if I don't do that, it's going to sound, it's going to look weird. It's not going to be what people want. Now I feel very existential reflection about my own work and career because I realize I'm at this weird place where I jump around way too much and that probably limits my ability to have an actual creative voice because right. I'm so, I'm way too diversified. I'm the exact, I, I have the opposite Wes Anderson problem. I've never perfected my craft in one thing. I just keep on dabbling Well, I mean, shit. from a business standpoint, it's great because people can go to you for anything versus, you know, being like, oh, Ivan, he just does that one thing and I don't need that for this project. Like, I think you're making more money probably <laughs> jumping around, doing different styles, but. Yeah, but I'm not in it for the money, man. I'm in it for the creative satisfaction. Sure <laughs> you are. <laughs> so if that's the case, I mean, you have your kind of main thing or you have your personal project you can do where like, hey, this is what I do, but also. You know, it's my fun stuff here too, or my my my, my pay the bills kind of stuff. But I think Wes Anderson doesn't need to do that because he's so successful and so well known that he doesn't have to pay the bills no more. He just has to make what he wants to do, and people are going to give him money. I don't think he's going to really say like, "Well, I'm going to force myself to do a, a a boring style that I don't like." And of course, this is all conjecture. I've never talked to the man about any of this, but I feel like we've discovered the hero of the world ten bombs here. It's Wes Anderson. It's Wes Anderson. Wes Anderson. <laughs> it's a movie about Wes Anderson's style. That's actually not that far off, and I think that there is his presence is so linked to all the films he makes. He he's Tarantino esque in that way. No, both... he's not. Don't say that. Oh my God. No, but I, Mike, I know you hate Tarantino, yeah. but Tarantino is very much like his voice is all over all his movies yeah. in a way that can't be ignored. And I, I'm I guess I'm trying to, I have this debate in my head is would I rather have a filmmaker that uh, loses, whose identity is lost in the picture that I'm watching, or would I rather watch a filmmaker that is so committed to a certain style and aesthetic that I immediately know that I'm watching that person's type of movie? Hmm. What do you think about, I mean, what's your answer to that, Dave? Like, w In terms of your favorite filmmakers, who do you like in that regard? Would you rather... 
I mean, even Spielberg, you could argue, is good at doing so many different things. He does make Spielberg-y movies. I'll, I'll, I'll concede to that. But I think he's the greatest living filmmaker because he has the ability to do, uh, uh, you know, a drama and then do a comedy and then do and then do a film like Minority Report, which is like what genre? That like what is that? Sci-fi. It's like weird yeah, sci-fi. Like, it's got weird jokes like, in it. It's got vomit packs and vomit guns and then I melting faces. Like, I like Minority I'm, Report. I'm sorry. Are we insulting Minority Report? I like Minority Report. I did too. It's but great. I'm watching it and I'm like, is it what? Is this funny? Is it serious? What the hell is going on? And it's been a while actually since I've seen it. I'd like to watch it again. So, worthy of a review. So if you were like uh, one of those people that nominate Golden Globes, you would nominate it for like a, a musical or comedy, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> like, I want to see Minority, Minority Report, Report the musical, <laughs> the way they did with the Martian this past year. You've heard, you've heard it here first. Uh, Mike thinks Minority Report is a comedy, and I'm, a I'm musical actually working comedy. on a musical, a, a comedic musical of Minority Report. In my downtime. Well, I mean, Dave. I mean, so I don't know. I mean, I know. So what's the question? Well, like, well, well, I know Pulp Fiction is your favorite movie of all time. Yes. Um, but I guess when you watch a movie, do you want to know what filmmaker has constructed it? Do you do you like when a filmmaker has that much of a grasp? Uh, has that much of a presence in the film? I, I I guess I used to not not so much anymore. I mean, I used to you know I I the movie that really got me into movies was Goodfellas, and so I just you know I became a huge Scorsese person. I just loved you know it didn't matter. I, I tried to watch everything he had produced. Well, that movie's or a perfect about. example because that right. is so Scorsese. That yes, movie. like yeah. it is it is the ep- epitome of Scorsese. And and he's you know for whatever reason he's always been called like a you know. Uh, a gangster picture director, but he's only made a, a handful of movies that are that are that you would really call gangster movies. You know, most of his movies are aren't aren't you know. It's easy to spot a Scorsese movie. I mean, it's just the camera moves, the the editing, the music choices, um, the style of acting. You know, it's 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 uh you know it's unmistakable when you see one of his movies that uh, you know that it's a Scorsese movie. So that you know. And uh, his movies aren't all the same. The way the Spielberg's movies aren't all the same, and uh, you know, so I don't know. I mean, I, 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 I'm giving a rambling answer here, but I think that yes, sometimes I do like to see the author's voice in in the movie. Uh, I'll, I'll go see a Wes Anderson movie be, because it's a Wes Anderson movie. Um, you know, it, it's uh, you know, I, I enjoy um, the way his movies look and sound and feel uh, the, the the textures of his movies. You know, I really uh, just get a lot out of just just watching the craft of the movie. Um, I thought you were so, going to say watching the crap out of a movie. The, cra- the craft, the craft the of the crap movie. Right out of that movie. Uh, you mean you're talking about the craft, the film from right. 1990? <laughs> the, the craft, the craft of the movie. The movie, the craft, uh, directed by Wes Anderson. <laughs> that would be interesting, actually. That would be interesting. There you go. He needs to do a Halloween movie. That would be like perfect oh, for Wes him. Anderson's Halloween. Wes Anderson's like a haunted house movie. Um, okay, uh, that's interesting because I think one thing that you said that resonates with me is I think that if you go back to college age Ivan, when he's really, really getting into movies, right? I think I would have made the statement that I really like when I can tell that the director has made the movie. Like, mm-hmm. I used to be really into David Gordon Green, his early mm-hmm. stuff that is very, like, David Gordon Greeny. It's like George really, Washington. All George the David Washington. Gordon Greeniest. It's, it's very, yes, it's the Greeniest. Mm-hmm. I used to love his, like, ethereal quality to his films. It is poetic and lyrical. Mm-hmm. It really spoke to me in a way. Um, since I never did drugs, it's probably the closest to ever, <laughs> ever getting high that I've ever been. So, uh, yeah. Um, but now... I like movies that I like movies that are the opposite of that. I like movies that are just very uh, story centric and are just 
I like movies that are screenwriter focused mm-hmm. in, in, in a lot of ways. And maybe this has to do with the way that TV works uh, and being TV being this writer's medium versus a, a directorial medium. Um, like uh, like a, like Vince Gilligan is the auteur of writing right. versus directing. Like sty- overly stylistic things bother me now mm-hmm. um, to the point where I think that I really appealed to me when I was 19 and 20. So I don't know. Just something to reflect upon about movie watching and maybe how your taste changes as you get older. I think that you know, my final thoughts in this film, The Royal Tenenbaums, is that I think it might be Wes Anderson's most emotional movie. Um, I think that both. I think that the fact that Owen Wilson is a co-writer on the film speaks volumes. Uh, Owen Wilson is a, a guy who has fought with depression his entire life, who's tried to commit suicide very mm-hmm. publicly. Um, and I think that there is no accident that, Wait, that he depression. He, he, no, not public. It was a public. It was. Okay. Then, it was in the news. It was in the news. Double check. No, he didn't like stand on a building and say, "I am going to kill myself." Right. He pulled a David Blaine and just stood in a tower. <laughs> uh, no, it, it's just uh, this is a movie that is dealing with weighty, heavy topics about depression um, that feel real to me, and I think that's why this movie works for me. Where something like Steve Zissou does not work for me. Or Darjeeling, you know, feels like it's trying but kind of fails. Or even Moonrise Kingdom is just so cutesy that it makes me want to pull my hair out. Like I, like in watching Moonrise hmm. Kingdom, I I had this I had like this hmm. fantasy of going up to Wes Anderson as he's directing it and just messing with his suit and his hair, <laughs> just to be like, oh, you think everything's so perfect now, man? Let me let me let me ruffle your hair and twist your ascot out of shape and just watching him I get like, all of it. I like Moonrise Kingdom. Uh, that movie does nothing for me. So uh. I I think that that's like bad Wes Anderson, whereas Royal mm. Tenenbaums is like satisfying Wes Anderson. So. Right. That, that's where I'm at with that. But anyway, uh, any final thoughts you guys have about uh, this stew of a movie? I just want to give a shout out to how well Wes Anderson uses music in movies. This, uh, okay, it's, it's, yeah. he's he's a really ter- he's just one of those directors that always knows, or he's he hires a music supervisor that really knows their stuff. Yeah, the soundtrack of this is fantastic. Yeah, I mean it's you know it's I really love good. I love the uh, sequence with uh, the, the uh, Simon and Garfunkel, who, uh, me and Julio down by the schoolyard, where they're just going around doing kind of random. Uh, you know, acts of vandalism, you know, stealing milk or riding on the back of a garbage truck or, or uh, go-karting through the streets in the middle of traffic or whatever, just running out into traffic. I mean... Well, even in Rushmore, the making time montage oh, where yeah. um, they chose all Max Fisher's various activities is, yeah. is another example of Wes Anderson montage music brilliance. I, I feel so. like that's a, that's been influential in commercials and film ever since. You know, that and also there's another great sequence in Rushmore where I think it's... Um, I'm trying to remember if it's Oyoko or uh, there, uh, my baby, the Cat Stevens song. There goes my baby. Uh, wherever uh, it's it's Bill Murray versus Jason Schwartzman, and, and you know they're they're battling. They're you know it's a it's a love triangle, and they're both in love with the same woman. And you know Bill Murray's running over his bike with his car, and he's you know he's like uh, setting bees loose inside Bill Murray's house and stuff. And it's just a terrific. I don't, I don't know if I'm making this movie sound appealing to you, Mike, but uh, no. <laughs> no, no, actually, actually that sounds pretty good. It's actually great. Um, yeah, he's really good at setting, uh, finding perfect music for, for scenes. I'm glad you mentioned that because I didn't talk about it and I should have because the music in this movie is very much a part of what it is. Mm-hmm. Um, Mike, any final thoughts on The Tenenbaum? Uh, final question, I guess. Um, final discussion point, perhaps. Margot. Bullet point A. What do we think oh, of yeah, her? We because I feel like Margo? a lot of the movie hinges on... Um, Richie's feelings for her, right? And we've had, the, I've asked this question before in the past, but I feel like sometimes if you don't, if the love interest is not likable or lovable, you kind of have a problem with, I do anyway, with with the, you know, the plot as it unfolds. And I feel like I don't really ever like her that much. 
just because maybe it's just a, a visceral like she's always moping around she's always mm. like just she's sad. not that likable <laughs> right so um, does that I, I, and I, I think I think in this case it, uh, Richie is still lovable enough where you kind of feel his pain you understand where he's from and you get to see a side of her that's a little bit better but I just I don't know by the end of the movie I don't feel like she has much of a character like she she goes to quitting cigarettes and then by the end of the movie she's like smoking again um, um treats her husband well, like crap like I, I just I don't know it doesn't well I think uh, the, she's a broken person just like uh sure sure maybe. but like do you I, I I think they're all broken people but you see their vulnerabilities where I feel like with her you don't really see much of vulnerability you just kind of see oh, someone I totally who's angry. I, I, oh, I, I I see her vulnerability a lot because well my, no you see she, it right but it's not secret cigarette thing or she's yeah no you there, she there's vulnerability there but it's not in a way what makes me sympathize with her necessarily I think there's a couple scenes here and there maybe but. I think this idea of the masks that you put up, like she puts up this cold facade because she's very hurt and broken inside because the way her father never made her feel like an equal. Um, And, you know, uh, I I think that that is kind of a touching story arc in in a lot of ways. I also find... I mean, I think think about Richard. He he kind of has a mask on the whole time. He's got his beard. He's got his glasses. He's got his headband. He has all these things in front of his face, right? And there's not much... I don't think he does much emoting even throughout the entire movie, but by the end of it, you feel like... Something in him has changed, and he's different. Hmm. And I don't really get the same sense of Margot. I don't. I, I don't know. I, I think that Gwyneth Paltrow as an actress gets a lot of crap. I think she's actually pretty good. Yeah, in a lot she, of I think, she's, she's, I think natu- she's good in this. She, yeah, she's got a natural warmth to her that I think you know comes out in this movie. Really? Well. Where? Yeah, I, I wouldn't say warmth. That's warmth? interesting. Yeah, warmth. That's warmth. Oh, I would say warmth. the opposite. Warmth. She's very cold in the movie. I mean, like, well, I mean, a bit, I'm saying it's the, it's a cold. It's the characters. It's as, it's a warm as, as cold. Very cold. Is written very cold, but I think there's enough, you know, to her just quality as a performer. I think well, I'm, I'm not a huge Gwyneth like, Paltrow like, fan, me, but I, like, I, I want to you know. be convinced. Like, where what scenes do you, you know, feel like actually? Kind okay, of well, well, the scene. The, so the, there's a scene after Richie's suicide where they're in, the, in a tent together in the middle of his room, mm-hmm. and that's the scene where they kind of reveal their mutual love for each other, I guess. And I feel like that scene plays pretty well. Um, you know, her warmth kind of comes out, I would say, in that scene. Yeah, but then she's, she's like, yeah. She opens, is, she opens up. This is bad. Never mind. Okay, bye. Well, yeah, but well, yeah, she does. She says, like, we're just going to have to be in love secretly, right? Yeah, but, but then, you know, that, that changes later in the movie. And mm-hmm. uh, I don't know. I mean, it's, you know, that, that's just one moment where I feel like it's, uh, it feels like an honest um, bonding moment between two people. Uh, it worked for me. <laughs> <laughs> what could I say? I feel I you know I feel like I I like the uh, the qualities in her performance. She's got uh, you know I've I've liked Gwyneth Paltrow in a few movies. I, you know I remember seeing her for the first time in Seven and uh, Shakespeare in Love and um, not a lot of other movies. But <laughs> you know I always thought she was good, especially you know uh, it's been a while since I've seen her. In a, have you guys seen Gwyneth Paltrow in anything? In the past, uh, the yeah. Iron Man's ten. Or the Iron oh yeah, yeah. You know, I like her in those movies. I do too. I think she's yeah. great. Yeah, I think she's good. Yeah. And I think uh, we saw her head get ripped open in the Soderbergh uh, movie about the virus, ah, the, uh, the, the yeah. outbreak movie. Yeah. Contagion. Wait, what movie? Yeah. I didn't. Uh, yeah, Contagion. Yeah, we're. Yeah, that was pretty gross. What happened to her? Head? <laughs> I think she gets a lot of shit because of her, her, you know, her, her pers- real, her real life, uh, like goop, goop, goop and that kind of stuff. And well, she I broke think- poor Chris Martin's heart. Well, oh, I just, oh, I, uh, did she? Um, yeah, yeah, uh, I guess. All right. If you're, I mean, it's, you know, that's what he told me. That. I don't, I think his heart was always, a always a little heart. broken. <laughs> I mean, it was always a little yellow. I'll tell yeah. you that. Uh-huh. Uh, oh, 
I think that um, I think that you can't be normal growing up in Hollywood, and Gwyneth Paltrow has grown up in Hollywood. Right. So I, I think it's impossible to be normal if your entire existence is not normal. So. Oh come on, there's normal people. There is no there, normal people. Nah, Mark Wahlberg's <laughs> pretty normal. There's a bunch of like what? normal guys. He's not normal. Wahlberg may be the least normal. Actually, yeah, anybody. he made Wahlburgers. He was, I mean, that's not he, normal. He was. He claimed he was that an he, underwear model and a rapper. And like, yeah, he claimed that he could stop. Not that that's bad, but it's he not. He claimed that he would have stopped 9-11 if he was on the plane. Yeah. He's yeah, insane. I guess that's bad. Okay, all right, so he's down. Uh, how about <laughs> Danny Glover? You know, Danny Glover might be normal. I don't think that he grew up in Hollywood, though. Shit, yeah. you might be right. I think I've been saying that if you yeah, grow, if you up, grow up, up in, in, a, in a world actor. of oh, what about, uh, wealth. What's his name? Jason Bateman? Yeah, he maybe. Went, Jason Bateman went through I, like eight years of drug addiction. He was a child actor. Shit, yeah. yeah, you're right. Yeah. All right, you know, this is this is our homework. We've got to find one person who grew up in Hollywood and is normal. That's totally normal? Yeah. Oh. I feel like we can do it. I feel like it's possible. I, I, well, maybe I mean, maybe Jodie Foster. I was going to say uh, J- Jason Schwartzman. Maybe Jason Schwartzman. Ooh. Because he, you know, he comes from a very famous family. Talia yeah. Shire's son. Yep. Yeah. Uh, Coppola. He's actor, musician, all that junk. But he seems kind of normal. I don't yeah. know. Anyway, uh, write in, people, if you've made it this far into the episode. And let us know who is <laughs> Fred a Savage. Pat- Fred Savage? <laughs> is he normal? I don't feel like he's normal. I don't know. All right. Okay, I think it's going to end this episode. <laughs> we're just going to start naming people. Uh, Mike, where can people find your work on the internet? Who, <laughs> you wants, can find to, who wants to be normal anyway? What? <laughs> who wants to be normal yeah, that's true. Overrated. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Mike Morandi um, or MikeMorandi.com. David? Dave Glanz on Twitter, G-L-E-N-Z, and DaveGlanzProductions.com. You can find me at Ivan Kander on Twitter. That's I-V-A-N-K-A-N-D-E-R. Uh, my website is Lucky9Studios.com, and I write and edit for ShortOfTheWeek.com. ShortOfTheWeek.com. Top of the morning, dear. Oh, God. Never, um, never going to stop that. It's just, never. It's just. It's a it's train, like, man. Uh, yeah, it's just never going to end. Um, uh, you can find us on the web at reviewedpodcast.com, facebook.com slash reviewedpodcast. Be sure to subscribe to us on iTunes, leave reviews, all that crap that people say you should do with podcasts. Yeah, all that crap. Really encouraging. Just, just go out and do it. Go and... Just do it. Go like, and Squarespace some Casper mattresses. Yeah. Yeah, go <laughs> buy a Casper mattress, what? sign up for a Squarespace, and then go buy some stamps at stamps.com. And then you can do the uh, the podcast trifecta. So yeah, there you go. Uh, there you go. MailChimp. And get a mail 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 kimp mail um, So they there you go. Um, until next time, we're going to be doing uh, Steven Spielberg's Hook, which just celebrated its 25th anniversary uh, on next uh, week's episode, which I'm very excited to talk about uh, because uh, that movie I don't know could kind of Peter suck, Pan, but I kind of remember loving it, so we'll see. Uh, hmm. So until next time, guys, we will see you for Hook. Au revoir. Have you ever seen uh, Extreme Measures with uh, Hugh Grant? I have. You've seen that one? I have. That's where he's like, uh, if you he, in the trailer, he's like, yeah. if you had to cure cancer, wouldn't you? Wouldn't you be okay with killing a few people first? <laughs> oh, that's right. That's, you, you always quote this movie. Yeah. Well, I only cold. remember the trailer. <laughs> I remember that. That's funny. I remember that. What I remember from the trailer is uh, Hugh Grant saying, "You're not God. You're not God. You're not God. You're not. You're not God." We talked about there's, this on podcast before. What a god complex stuff in the nineties. If you could cure cancer. And you had to kill a peep, couple people, wouldn't you do it? Kill a people. Kill, kill a people. Kill a people. <laughs> if you had to kill a people. All right, let's get the show on the road. It's only going to get better from here. I think we're warmed right. up. We're ready to rock.